Okay. I I was planning on uh, doing a Q&A today, but I changed my mind and uh I want to start by talking about Q&As actually uh because when I thought about doing a jhana retreat that was the first thing that I thought about and the thing that I felt would be most challenging for everyone including myself uh how do you put a group of people with hugely different backgrounds hu- who have huge hugely different amounts of experience with a goal oriented practice like jhana practice how do you put them in the same room and allow them to ask questions and hear the questions of other people without psychological mayhem and <laughs> and uh extreme dukkha and etc <laughs> so this really i'm not i'm not exaggerating this this was the this was really the the main thing for me about the retreat uh, it wasn't about mapping the jhanas it wasn't about teaching the nuts and bolts and all the subtleties it was that um that was the thing and hmm you know how are we going to do that and i meant to talk about all that uh near the beginning of the retreat and I don't know what happened sorry says I did but I I I don't remember talk I meant to yeah I meant to really really raise it as an issue and really put it in the room for us to be conscious of and to take care of and I maybe it's just all the preparing for the retreat and the busyness and the medical I don't know what happened but I didn't so apologies for that um you know what what happens uh, for some people at some times um when we hear someone ask a question and it sounds like well they're at a completely different level than us they're way beyond um or whatever it is or um or we feel mm, am i going to be perceived as some kind of grandiose fancy uh arrogant meditator if i ask my advanced question or is my question not not advanced enough or too beginning or 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 all that all that dukkha all that potential for comparison in an unhelpful way self-judgment in an unhelpful way um making conclusions about selves also about others views etc so it can be very difficult to ask questions for some people very difficult even the people that manage to ask questions it can be so difficult that it kind of uh oftentimes in not on this retreat but o- on other retreats this person's asked a question in the hall or if we go into the lounge or whatever and they've given a response and they're there and they're nodding and then afterwards we have an interaction and I say was that helpful and they say I don't know because I was completely checked out after I'd asked the question and I I just wasn't um there um so all that's very very normal and it can be very painful for some people at some times to hear uh to hear a certain question or whatever it is or a certain given uh, back and forth or a certain instruction I mean, it's not just about Q&As so even yesterday just moving to the second jhana and giving instructions for those and even I say you know your pace is your pace and it needs to be your pace and how easy we can think oh i'm not there yet and how painful it can be to just hear things just from in teaching about about states or 
uh, openings or insights, or whatever that are, that seem to be beyond us, and what can happen, and and the way the mind can tie itself in, in kind of not just knots but knots of barbed wire. You know, really, really painful. So we could, uh, and maybe we should, I don't know, uh, you know, add the possibility of asking questions by note as well. So I can just get some notes and they could be anonymous and I can try my best to do that. And then maybe if the person wants to identify themselves, they could, and if they don't, they don't, and just hope that my answer kind of hits the spot. Um, and that's certainly a possibility. We can think about it. But in a way, in a way, you know, I just wonder whether to some degree, that that might be avoiding a much larger issue. And I think the issue is cultural. So I can't think of one passage in the Pali Canon where it reports something like this. So-and-so was there and wanted to ask a question, but felt, you know, they, they would be judged. Or they heard so-and-so's interaction with the Buddha or Ananda or whatever it was, and they felt... Uh, they felt really bad, or it's just not there. And I don't think it's there uh, as far as I've heard. I haven't really practiced much in Asia, like with, you know, with really Asian people a lot. Um, but I have teachers who have, and from what I've heard, it's not really there. So somehow they're able to be in a group together. One person is. Uh, you know, working on the last stage of awakening to final enlightenment, and the other person's somewhere in the middle somewhere, and the other person's somewhere else, and it's all really, it's somehow okay. So I think the larger issue is partly a really cultural issue to what has happened to our culture, I mean our Western culture, with all its gifts and all its wondrous achievements. What has happened that this has become such a difficult sort of scenario to, to be in together. And it's partly to do also with, uh, and I think I've mentioned this in here, and certainly uh, other talks, we actually have a quite a different sense of self. Not just an idea of what the sen uh, self is, but actually our sense of self is, is very different. We live in a different culture that the, the self is differently supported and differently alienated. And there's pressures on the self in our culture, in our time, that did not exist, uh, say, for example, at the time of the Buddha or in other cultures. And there's a lot of gifts that come from that in terms of individuality and self-expression and creativity, but there's a price. And sometimes those, th those, very, those very potential gifts, my, my potential creativity, my potential self-expression, they become really, really painful things. They don't become gifts. They become things that become really painful because a person feels like, well, oh, I know I, I can, I should, and other people seem to, but where's mine? Well, mine doesn't compare. So to me, it's, uh, it's a really interesting question. I, I, so I really mean, what actually has happened? How did this happen to our culture and to our society and our sense of being together. Um, and I'm not going to go into that. I, don't, I certainly don't know all the answers, but I, I find it really interesting. And it's something I think about and something I try and read about and whatever. So I just want to say a few things. And having said that, you know, um, one of the, uh, with all the teachings on the retreat and everything that's said, it's like some of it will 
feel relevant to you right now, and some of it won't feel relevant. Um, but it should be relevant at some point. So these issues should be relevant at some point about the problem of having a goal and the problem of comparison and the problem of having a desire for something and what comes up with that and the problem of really wanting something and getting frustrated. So if it doesn't feel relevant now, it should at some point. And if it never does, then that's in a way its own problem. And uh, it, that should be relevant. The inquiry, why, why do I never feel any issue about that? So it may or may not feel relevant today, but that goes for all the teachings in, in the retreat. Um, but it, I think it will be, should be relevant at some point. So some of what I want to say is just some reminders of things. You know, there's a lot of information in the first, whatever it was, six, seven days of the retreat. Some of it will be reminders. Um, as I said, there was a lot There was a lot that was said there, and some of it, it just, the significance, uh, I think I said, I don't know if you remember me saying, you won't realize the significance of some things I'm saying. So some of them I'm going to repeat, just as little reminders. I mean, the first is, you can do this. You can do this. Everyone in this room can do this. And by this, I mean what I'm talking about with all the marination and the mastery and the wonderful sounding experience. You can do this. Sometimes you believe that you can't and that you never will be able to, but you can do this. You really can. I was just hearing from someone yesterday, it was a couple of days ago in that, oh, I can't, and, and, and everything shrinks, everything gets contracted, stuck, hatred, self-hatred, the whole, the whole show gets going. Still shows up, thankfully, and then a couple of days later, lo and behold, an opening like they never had before. You can do this. If you have ever experienced some lov lovely well-being in, uh, from meditation, in meditation, um, say PT, some lovely well-being um, through the body, I, st I stand by this. If you have ever experienced that, it means that everything what I'm talking about is possible for you. The whole thing, the whole nine yards, the whole eight jhanas is possible. You can do this. The fact that there is a dip, a disappearance of uh, what you had experienced before, a non-occurrence of it for an afternoon, a day, three days, whatever it is, does not imply that it has then become impossible for you. It doesn't actually even imply that you're going backwards in practice. Remember this thing? Or that thing? Yeah? It, it really doesn't imply that. What it should imply instead is, okay, here's the dip. Do I maybe it's probably just a hindrance attack of one form or other, one degree or other, that has maybe got more and more spinning out more, more or less papancha. So it's a dip. It should rather imply, okay, what, what should I do with this? What can I do with this? It should bring some questions, which is part of the whole art of responsiveness that we've been stressing. What might be helpful right now in relation to this, in relation to this dip, in relation to this non-occurrence? And dips in the context of jhana practice, yeah, they can last three days or something. And three days on retreat in a dip, in a hindrance attack, especially if it's wound up and gotten the, the papancha stuff going, three days is a long time. 
to sit through that. There's no TV. There's no, <laughs> there's no it's Christmas and you haven't had a drink and it's like <laughs> it's a long time to be through that. If I'm believing it, that's a long time. And it seems like forever, and it's not. It's a dip that's lasted three days. Of course, it doesn't, you know, you can get dips of a couple of hours or half a day, like I said, but um, question, you know, responsiveness, question, okay, what might be helpful now? What should I try? Let's play. Okay, and of course, you feel very heavy and down. You don't feel playful. So think of it as work or think of it as play. Just find a way of of relating and, and responding. Um, how should I view the meditation object? What way of viewing it right now when things really don't feel like they're working? What can I play with there? How should I view my practice as a whole? How should I view jhana practice? How should I view myself on the path? Remember I said that the view of the self on the path is extremely significant. It's a make or break factor. I know people, I don't know if I said this, I'll say it again, it doesn't matter. I've known people meditating for years, have had all kinds of deep experiences, all kinds of what could be very liberating experiences, and somehow they're not. They add up to very little over the long run. And what's kind of locking the whole thing in this um, unliberating incapacity is a kind of self-view that's operating, they're not even really conscious of what that, the view of the self on the path. And it's just, it's almost like it strangles anything else. It squeezes out the potential of any experience or opening or insight delivering anything kind of really uh, either stably or radically liberating. How should I view, then, the object of meditation? How should I view my practice? uh, How should I view my jhana practice? How should I view my practice in general? How should I view myself on the path? How should I view this dip, this absence, this uh, trough of the wave? I mentioned for the soul makers, you know, how important it might be to have a really supportive um, imaginal fantasy of the self on the path? Or is it actually, okay, it's, it's not going well right now. It's either very rough or just very dry or something, and I just need to stay steady with that. I just need to keep plugging away. It's a hindrance attack. I just need to keep showing up. I need to be patient and just keep working. But the, you know, the, the, the pivotal question really is, does it imply a reality or a truth about you, this dip, this non-occurrence, this absence? Even if it's three days, or does it really imply a truth about you and about your practice and your capacities as a practitioner? Or is it just that there's a habitual tendency of believing something about the self? I'm just used to believing that I can't, that I'm a failure, that other people can, that whatever it is. So I put that question to you. How do you hear it? 
It's kind of like Rob saying, <laughs> he's being kind and nice and saying, you know, don't worry about it. No, I mean it for you to take as a question, a really, and ask the question intensely, sometimes, sometimes. Because you can very say, oh, nice, nice, nice. It is not. I'm, I really mean it as a question. Like, is this, does it really imply a reality, a truth about me? And, and what might I believe that truth is? Or is it a habitual tendency to believe something about the self? So it's a real question for you. Remember this thing about listening on your toes? Same, it's what I'm talking about here. It's like you, we can easily hear something like what I just said, and it's just, you've heard it so many times on insight retreats, sort of like, oh yeah, there's the, here's the nice, kind bit sort of thing, and it goes in one ear and out the other. No, grab it by the... <laughs> yeah, ask it, intensely ask it. <coughs> I tried to remember, I can't remember, so these figures may be a little wrong, but if I remember back, I think I sort of, well, I, I wouldn't say I stumbled into the first jhana because it was something that I was interested in right from the beginning when I first heard of them. It really piqued my curiosity in practice. But somehow or other, I got into the first jhana on an insight retreat years ago. And no. Yeah, something. It was something I had a bit. A bit uh, I'd had quite uh, some PT and stuff, and actually problematic, problematic relationship with PT. That, as I said, I went pretty lunatic for a while. So uh, there was that whole period, really PT in a very unfruitful way, quite some years, in fact. You don't have to f replicate my uh, <laughs> mistakes here, but I just want to give you kind of reality check. Remember, I said this thing about drop schedules, and if you if you attach to a schedule, it, it will bring dukkha. Is what it will bring. Remember me saying that. So just to give you, you know, a comparison, so I, I had this very long or this opening to PT, which was very pleasurable for a little bit, and then got very very problematic for really, I think the better part of two or three years, had to stop practicing for quite a while, do all kinds of other explorations, and then come back to practice and start very gently again. So you don't have to do all that. Um, it's partly as they're coming from uh, over-efforting. But then I resumed practice, and in time I got a little bit of PT and then even some happiness at, at some point. And then a little while later, on a retreat, um, I. I I got into the first jhana. It was an insight retreat. Luckily, the teacher that I told, I'm pretty sure, was Christina, and she's uh, she was very, very uh, pro jhana, encouraging of that. At least she was to me. And um, and it's sort of like I didn't get a negative. That's a bad thing. And then I was lined up for a whole series of retreat, and I can't remember exactly, but. Um, then I think I, I came on a month retreat, and most of that month, I didn't do anything else but jhana practice. That was my intention. I said the intention was really good. And it took me the whole month to really feel like it became stable and it became good, and there was maybe some of that mastery. And then quite a while later, I came back for more retreats, and um, I sort of started... I, I probably didn't need to, but I, did, I took the time. I don't know if I need to. I took the time to do it all over again. What I'm really saying is it's a slow process, or it can be a really slow process. So if you're thinking, oh, Rob's sitting there, he probably just 
you know, this and that, that it's not true. Okay? And I've said this in imaginal contexts as well. It's like I'm not particularly a person who has a lot of images or whatever. So, is it something about you or is it something about the way we relate? What I can say is, and I'll come back to this, is I feel like I've worked hard at how I related to things that I really wanted, goals that I really wanted, openings that I really wanted. And that makes a difference. It's not some super duper talent or something, natural inclination. Well, I can't remember if those, that's exactly completely, but something like that. Uh, so so uh, sometimes in the hall, someone will ask a question and maybe I might even say, oh yes, that sounds like the third jhana or something like that. And you feel like, well, if I'm still trying to get PT stable or coming. Um, but maybe that person who's asking that question about what seems to be the third jhana, what may well be the third jhana, you know, maybe they've been doing this for years. Maybe they've been doing jhana practice for years or on and off for years. Um, so it's just good to bear that in mind. And also bear in mind that, okay, they may have that opening, but they may, be they may have other gaps in their practice, or they may be struggling with other difficulties that aren't in the question at that point. But when the, the mind shrinks so easily around what it hears and, and with comparison, etc. You know, another thing I said earlier uh, in the retreat was, um, I see this three weeks, or however long we got together, this three weeks, I see it in a much larger context of your, much larger potential context of your, your lives and your practice. And I, I would really encourage you to see it the same way. Um, so this three weeks that we're spending together is, uh, you know, it has its context in potentially years of jhana practice. And doesn't that, of course, I said, think I said one time you could take a three-year jhana practice. Yeah, if that's what you want to do and if the opportunity arises. But I mean, just periods. Most of you, maybe not all of you, but most of you in this room will be dedicated seriously to Dharma practice for the rest of your lives, and I hope that's very long lives. And within that, you may have like periods, stretches, where you just revisit jhana practice, and I'll talk about that at, at the end of the retreat. Um, so I see this, this retreat in that context. Something interesting, you know, um, a lot of people wanted to come on this retreat. A lot of people, there wasn't room. For some reason, Guy House made it uh, a much smaller retreat, the numbers. A lot of people were disappointed. And I partly felt like, it's only three weeks. What do you, you know, it's like, don't put too much pressure on the expectation on these three weeks. The recordings will be there. The teachings will be there. So really, it's like, what is it t to work and play uh, now, on these three re weeks, to work and play, as I say, play hard, play hard, you know, give it wholeheartedness, your work and play, but without putting too much pressure on, on these three weeks. So I, re I really, really mean this, it's sort of not like, oh, if I say that, <laughs> somehow you'll feel better or something, I mean, you hopefully will, but uh, three weeks is just three weeks. This retreat is just three weeks. The fact that I'm here is like, it's, it's not that much difference, you know? It's like, well, the fact that you are, we are together, 
and other people are not now with me here. Okay, so, so a lot of this is repeat, um, but just to, am I doing the practices that have helped in the past give rise to well-being and PT? Am I actually choosing those practices? Or am I for some reason choosing other practices? Um, that's a really important question. If, if, if you ask that and you find you're not, then why? What, what's actually happening there? Um, <coughs> a couple of other reminders of things I said earlier. Remember about the, the intention and how important that is. And what, 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 what do I think I'm doing when I come into a formal practice, sit, walk, stand, whatever it is? What do I semi-consciously or subconsciously think I'm doing? I'm wanting to develop PT, wanting to develop jhana. But there were a whole host of other um, beautiful things that we're, we could potentially realize that we're developing at the same time, right? Such as... I can't hear any of you. One at a time, sorry. Attunement, wholeheartedness, sensitivity, patience, kindness, very good. Trust, love for Dharma. Mindfulness, what was it? Huh? Non-judgment, beautiful. This actually, this is really important. A, it, those are really, really important qualities. So if you get to the eighth jhana and you're just as unkind, or just as self-judgmental, or just as impatient, it's like, <laughs> it's not that interesting. We have to look at the big picture so those are really important qualities and opening up the intention again and again to realize that this is what I'm doing here. And so we get so tight, even now some of you may not even be, this may not be landing at all. We get so tight, if opening up the view will help your, help everything, it will help your well-being. We talked also about opening up the intention so that it's not just about me, right? Do you remember? Talked about practicing for each other and showing up for each other and practicing for all beings. And again, this is one of the things it's very easy to sort of like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Can you be radical with this? W would you know how to do that? So we can just, oh yeah, that's a good idea, and kind of do it once or twice, like a bit half-heartedly. What would it be to be radical with this? Really radical. Try. And, and if you don't know what it means to be radical with something like that, try. What does it mean? This, this intention to practice, like I'm just giving away the intention uh, not for myself, for others. Radically for all beings. See if you can get a sense of that and the power of that. Sometimes. I talked about exchanging self and other. Right? So some of you don't know that practice, but I briefly described. 
this dukkha, these hindrances, this misery, this um, pain of stagnation, this pain of not getting what I want, of not opening to what I love, this pain of self-comparison in a negative way, whatever it is, I take this dukkha on, I take this suffering um, so that magically somewhere someone can have uh, the openings that they, that they yearn for. And that can apply to all kinds of dukkha. It's a radical, re it's a, a radical practice. It's a radical reorienting of uh, of will, of intention, etc. Okay, who's heard of the Noble Eightfold Path? <laughs> who's heard of the four foundations of mindfulness who's heard of the seven factors of awakening okay mm, you're, good, you're good at this stuff. who's heard of the four bases of power hmm iddipada iddipada it's one of the buddha's lists iddipada Four bases of power, sometimes translates four bases of success, four bases of accomplishment. I'm not going to go into them, I'm just going to mention the four desire, persistence, intent, and discrimination, discernment about what is skillful and unskillful. So, uh, I'm giving a very shorthand version, but the four idipada, four bases of success, let's call them that, four bases of success or accomplishment, desire, uh, persistence, intent, and uh, discrimination about what's skillful and what's unskillful. Yeah, idipada is I-D-H-I, or I-D-D-H-I, I think. Yes, yes, I-D-D-H-I. So it's related to us, it's the Pali for Siddhi, basically. That um, Iddipada, uh, P-A-D-A. Um, and the Buddha says, whoever develops, whoever cultivates, whoever gives attention to these four bases of power, uh, gives attention to and develops the Eightfold Path, and the, 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 the path to the ending and to liberation. And whoever neglects these four bases of power, neglects the Eightfold Path, neglects the way, forsakes the way to liberation. It's quite interesting to me that most of you had never heard of this list before. Sometimes it's a list that gets associated with psychic powers and stuff, but actually as in the quote I just gave for the Buddha, it's very connected with the Eightfold Path and, and liberation. It's quite interesting that we haven't heard of this. Why, why do you think we haven't heard of this? Might it have anything to do with the fact that desire is one of them? And the word power, yeah. So power is not power over. Power is, in physics, power is kind of like 
related to uh, the, the capacity to work, the capacity to do or to make something happen. So it's like, oh, desire, let's maybe sweep it in the corner where, or put it under the rug where it won't be seen to be part of. I, I wonder whether that's partly to do with the whole deal. So, I want to talk a little bit about desire, and I've talked an enormous amount about desire, as some of you know, in other contexts, in the context of talking about eros and soul-making and all that stuff. I don't want to talk at great length, I just want to say a few things, and uh, not so much about the soul-making and eros aspects of it. Uh, but here we have a desire, and a desire is always for something. A desire always have a desire for something. So there's whatever word you want, something I want to achieve, or a goal, or some thing I want to open, or ex attain, experience. And, and then, in this case, we're on a retreat, we're working, or playing, or trying to move towards something that we desire. What we learn in that process, here's the desire, and I'm not just going to abandon my desire. What I learn then, I want to get that, whatever that is, in this case, jhana or whatever. What I learn in that process, what I develop in that process, what I learn about my relationship with desire and about my relationship with goals, it may well be uh, the biggest or the most important part of this practice. It may well be more important than attaining this or that jhana. How many people believe what I just said? <laughs> That's really interesting. Okay. I, I really, really mean that. Um, I really, really mean that. So what happens when we put ourselves in a context like this, we're only really doing this practice. We're only really meditating. There's nothing else. And then what we're putting most attention to becomes what the self is most likely to judge itself about or in relationship to. Yeah? If we were doing something very different, you wouldn't be judging how your meditation is going. And it wouldn't be the self, is self would be constructed around something very different. Put yourself in, a, in an environment like this, it's meditate, 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 there's talk of different goals, there's nothing else really going on. That's what the self will get constructed. The self needs something in relation to which it constructs itself. Constructs itself either in a, in a nice way, a good feeling way, a grandiose way, a problematic way, a, 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 a contracted and, and difficult way. But in this kind of environment, it will construct around practice and around how practice is going. So we notice practice can't help but be up and down. And what happens in this environment when there's this uh, emphasis, huge emphasis, kind of obsessional emphasis on meditation and me uh, not just meditation, but meditation along certain lines and towards certain ends, practice goes up and down and then how much because of that with it, the mood goes up and down. And with that, very easily, the whole belief gets dragged into that. And 
uh, the whole perception and belief of self, of others, of the world, of practice, of Gaia House, of whatever it is. I, th- th- this is so, so important. So that, as I say, if I turn this around, let's see. Um, so this business, this real up and down, where everything gets kind of, uh, feels like it's really difficult, feels like I'm not getting anywhere, feels like maybe I'm failing, etc. This, this uh, what's the word, the amplitude of that curve, yeah? If by the end of the retreat it moves to this, the amplitude is smaller, that would be a massive success. A massive success. And what makes the amplitude smaller? That we don't believe so much what the mind is saying then. Back to this thing when I talked about the hindrances. I don't believe so much the stories that get spun. When I have a strong desire for something, an intense desire for something, it gets charged. It becomes a focal point of charge and in relation to that focal point of charge, my mood and my whole sense of self uh, gets constructed in, in a very turbulent way on these waves. And then the whole world of Papancha can get constructed with it. And if the amplitudes of, of that construction and that whole curve can, can decrease, that would be, that would be huge. Bec- and it gets less primarily through learning not to believe uh, what, what the hindrances are saying, what the mind is saying, what the conclusions, what the beliefs are about self, about practice. Not to take them personally. I'm just repeating what I said before, but it's, it's of such great significance. So really, I'm, I'm, I'm being totally honest saying, saying this stuff. By the end of the retreat, I would view that as a, as a um, huge development and a huge success if that's, that's what happened. That's what you could report back to me. And, and, and in terms of the whole life, that may be more significant and more transformative and more liberating than that you attained this or that jhana. So I, you know, again, it's like, or another way of saying it is, remember I said jhana practice is this. It's not this. It includes the difficulty and how I'm relating to the difficulty. Remember I said that? Jhana practice includes the really grotty, grimy, sloggy, boring, unsexy, unglamorous, unimpressive bits. I, I really, really invite you again into that much bigger view of what we're doing. This is what I mean by jhana practice. Anything smaller is a kind of immature understanding. It will not bear the same fruit. You're, you're limiting. If I have a, a limited view, I will limit the fruit. So I really, really again and again invite you into this much larger view of what you're doing here, what the territory is, and what counts as, jhana, as fruitful jhana practice. doesn't always feel good. And then the, the, the half of, of the time or whatever it is, the proportion of the time when it really doesn't feel good is just as valuable, at least as valuable. So can I somehow have that bigger view and work and play and play hard and be wholehearted and 
all that without giving up the desire. You know, um, slight risk in, in saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, what exactly the desire or desires is or are in doing jhana practice or devoting time at uh, any time in your life to a period of jhana retreat or jhana practice, what exactly the desires are? What exactly are you wanting there? And why? And also how we relate to those desires or that desire. Those two things, how we relate to our desire and desires and what exactly are we desiring and why are we desiring. So all that whole conglomeration there that maybe it may be extremely significant and determinative in what actually unfolds for you. Interesting. I, I'm tentative to bring this up, but it's um, so. Why would I do a jhana retreat? I might want the pleasure. I've heard about these lovely states of pleasure. Or I might have, for instance, met or read some monk who said, oh, y y you need to have jhanas, and if you don't have jhanas, you're kind of wasting your time on the Buddhist path. So I should, and my desire is, uh, is my desire for the pleasure, is my desire coming out of a should? In which case, it's a, it's a, it, maybe it's a should because I really want liberation, but maybe that's another should. So going, going into the desires a little more, actually unpacking the, the layer, the, uh, range and the layers, the, the variety and the layers of desires. Is it because I like the teacher? Or maybe I, I know someone who likes the teacher and they said he, she, they were cool, whatever. Is it uh, because I want to achieve something? I want to get my badges. And again, what why? What's that coming from? If what we talked about this yesterday, it's like how the desire for achievement may be coming from different places or different impulses in in the psyche, in the self sense. Is it because I want to improve my focus, uh, the ability of my mind to concentrate and focus on something? And again, if so, why? And then maybe I get an answer to the why, and then again, why? Is it that I'm heard about these mystical states and I'm curious about them or I have a desire for a mystical kind of opening? Is it that I want to go on this or that particular retreat because um, my friend is going or my partner is going and they're really enthusiastic and I just kind of go with them? Or is it I'm actually not quite sure or I really don't know? or lots of, lots of other things. So, <laughs> do we realize what the mix of desires and intentions and 
impetuses are uh, and do we realize what I said earlier that they're actually very significant and that my relationship with the desires very is extremely significant in what actually unfolds. So again, I would say that for many people that what I've just said is more significant than as a teaching than if I were to give a certain technical explanation how it might help to move from this jhana to the next jhana. Remember I used this phrase, getting a developing a nose for it, do you remember? Partly what I mean uh, and what I was talking about then is what's significant and what's less significant? What has a kind of meta-significance and what just a kind of smaller significance? So if I were to give two teachings, let's say one about what I've just said about desire and one about, let's say, what I just said, okay, here's how you can move from this jhana to this jhana, just try this or whatever. Do I, do I have the kind of wisdom and the kind of intuition, the kind of nose for it that recognizes that's the really significant teaching? This is subsidiary. So I hesitate to say all that because all what I've just said and those questions and those points, they may be quite agitating for some people and um, maybe confusing for some people. But a few of you, or a few people listening to this, let's say, a few people um, maybe need to get clearer about that. Or there may come a time when that actually, though exactly those questions and going deeper into those questions is exactly what you need. And it may be there are people listening who don't realize that later on at some point they will really, really, uh, it will be a very significant question. But do you understand this thing about, it's like, it's hard, I think it's hard for human beings sometimes, or it's hard for us to listen and get a kind of a, a structural understanding of teachings. That's what partly what I mean by a nose for it. Like, what are the sort of um, top-level hierarchy teachings and what are the sort of lower-level detail teachings? Does that make sense? It's quite a rare sort of gift or skill or whatever to actually develop this this sense of being able to order the hierarchy of teachings. And, and something on a top level high is actually much more significant. Oftentimes, when it's given as a teaching, it doesn't sound significant. It doesn't sound significant. The thing that sounds significant is this little detail, or little tip, or whatever it is. Um, so, but over time, I think we can develop that art and skill. You know, actually learning to think more structurally, more globally, and and in that process, it's it's not so much a thinking as an it, well, it is a thinking, but it's also an intuition. I feel it's really, really important. Um, so, you know, what happens to us as human beings with desire when we have desire, when we have strong desire? Do we even recognize, as I said, what kinds of desire we have or what's actually moving us? And is it a deep desire in our being or is it something else? Or what's, what's running us? What desires run in us, etc. But having a deep desire and something you really want, it's difficult. It's, it's, unless you just get what you want immediately, it's difficult. 
So I, I, you know, I've been in this hall, you know, as a yogi, lots, uh, lots of times. And I remember, in another context, it wasn't a jhana retreat. I was on a long retreat and hearing an uh, interaction between a student and teacher, and it seemed to me at the time that the teacher was corroborating this student's awakening. And, uh, you know, I had to go for a long walk after that, a long, long walk. Um, at that time, it didn't generate all this, you know, I'm a failure, etc. But, it, you know, I wanted something so much. And just to hear, back to what we were talking about, back, back Q&As and that sort, just to hear or witness something where it seemed like someone had something that I wanted uh, so deeply, so much, I cared so passionately about, it was difficult, you know, it was difficult for me. And that was even without the whole self, I can't, I never will, da da da, by that point, that was not there so much. Um, to give you a more another example, you know, I some of you know I, I was a musician um, before I was a Dharma teacher, and I started playing. I started playing the guitar very late. Um, I was introduced to Jimi Hendrix as about at about 17 years old, and just fell in love, and was also introduced to this uh, young guy uh, I watched on TV playing a guitar concerto, and I just thought, wow, I want to do that, and. It doesn't matter the details, but my, uh, let's say, I, had, I went to university, had to do the whole academic thing at university. It wasn't, it wasn't, uh, didn't seem, I was, n I was re really a beginner for, for, you know, years after that, in, into my 20s, etc. And I did, I went through university studying something else, and, um, and I really, really, really wanted to, to do music. I had such a, almost viscerally painful uh, desire that felt like something wanted to come out and express and, and manifest. And uh, this could get a very long story, but <laughs> 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 um, so for different reasons, complex, painful reasons, um, my, my father was really not supportive of this idea. And um, for him, it was very important that I pursued an academic career and this sort of thing. Etc. And um, what happened was I disagreed with him. I had found a, a music school in America where I could uh, go, still being pretty much a beginner. And they would let me in. And I had enough money for a few months, not even a whole year. Of and I just went. Uh, very difficult with my father, etc. Um, and there, there are reasons for him for that don't have to go into it. Um, so people around me thought, you're crazy. I mean, clearly you're, you're into guitar, but you're not very good. Um, and it was true. I was really, I wasn't very good. I was a beginner. Um, and my mother, uh, I would say, I'm going to say a few things together about all this. So it's about desire. And, and how we handle desire. My mother, I would say, if I compare uh, musically myself and my mother, I would say, well, first thing is, m musical talent is not one thing. There's lots of different talents in music, as there are in meditation. It's not one thing that we're talking about. There's a lot of different talents. So if you do the music, it's like, okay, there's compositional, and how your ear is, and the ear in can do this or that, or the sense of form, or there's a million different things. Um, so even compositional talent is 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 a bunch of different things. Improvisational talent, even 
I was into jazz guitar. It's like even that's a you know a lot of different things. My mother, um, I would say, is is in some respects at least got much more talented musically than I am. I, I would say she can do things easily that for me were didn't come easily or naturally. So here I was. Uh, I probably could have had my pick or choose of any academic direction at that point that I wanted to go in. Um, and I went off to America instead to try um, to try and become a jazz musician with not much money, etc. But I had this intuition that, and I knew I wasn't very good. I mean, it was obvious, to, like I said, not <laughs> I knew I was a beginner. I had this intuition that my desire and my longing and my eros, the depth of love that I had for music and the sort of need to, to, for it to come out, um, it was obvious that it was much more than my, my mother. So I said, she's able to do this or that quite fast, but she doesn't love music anywhere near the depth that I love music. Um, and so she never really developed it. And, but I had this intuition that somehow the depth of love and the depth of, of my desire was somehow proportional to my talent that wasn't manifesting or the possibility. Do you understand what I'm saying? That, that, that my love and my desire itself indicated something that wasn't visible. It indicated something about what might be possible for me. And it indicated something about a talent that really was not visible. So I'm not just, you, you're probably thinking, oh yeah, I bet he was really, and he's just, no, I really, I really, I was really a beginner. And so I got to this music school where the joke was, um, uh, all you need, all you need to get in is a check and a pulse. <laughs> and I took advantage of that. I had the check, at least for, you know, a, a third of a year or whatever, I had the check. I didn't know what I was going to do after that, but I, but I had that check and I had the pulse. Then the joke went, the second half was, lately it seems all you need is the check. But um, anyway, but this school, it was the, at that time it was pretty much the only school in the world where you could study jazz. So that was, that was the place to make it to. This is years ago in the 80s. And, um, and so I was really the bottom of the bottom there. Uh, and I really mean it. You know? And so there, w th there were people, because it was the only place, a lot of people would come from all over the world. They were already you know, totally accomplished music. They were just there so they could get an American visa for a while, so they could make connections, move to New York, and be a jazz musician in New York, etc. It was just a... So you had this enormous range I mean, really, really super accomplished musicians. They didn't need to be taught hardly anything. All the way down to me. And I, and I had this, this like a visceral desire. So I would go, you know, to college, and I was really happy to be out of that, you know, out of that whole scene in England and doing what I loved. But it was really, really painful. And I would, you know, go and then you know, have a sort of hu humiliating day uh, in college playing and being heard and then hearing other people play and all that. And would sometimes drag my guitar case home, you know. Um, I'm not exaggerating, it's really, really difficult. Um, I'm glad you find it funny. <laughs> 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 it, it, was, it was, you know, 
somehow I stayed 15 years and, and I developed as a musician. I worked so hard at it and it was difficult in all kinds of ways. My point really is um, if I love something deeply, if I really desire something deeply, I, uh, and I was, I was right about the, ta- about the talent thing. You know, I, I feel really um, touched and blessed by what eventually manifested. Um, so that intuition about if I love it this much, there must be something that wants to express. That, that I would say that turned out to be right, and I feel very humbly touched by, by what came in the end. But, but the point, the main point is, if we really desire something, if we let ourselves feel that desire and don't just throw it away, and don't just shun it, um, then I've got to find a way of tolerating that, tolerating being okay with the pain of it. That, that comes with it often, the cut of it, the burning of it, the frustration that comes with it sometimes, the setbacks. Of that whole journey, so one journeys with a desire. The desire uh, is, is the end, that's why it's the basis of success, the basis of, of accomplishment. It's part of the, the fuel. And somehow, if I have this desire, and I'm not going to throw it away, and I'm going to let myself be on fire, then at least some of that time, I'm going to meet frustration, I'm going to meet difficulty, I'm going to meet setbacks, I'm going to meet hurdles that seem insurmountable, problems that seem, I don't know, I'm going to. And the question is, what? how am I going to hold that? How am I going to relate to that? Can I tolerate it? Yeah. Looking back, you know, on all that time in music, I suppose I could say from one point of view, I suppose I could say the desire to uh, express and to manifest um, what wanted to manifest, what wanted to, I, could, I suppose I could say that that desire was bigger than my desire to be free of the pain that came with the desire. The pain of failing, of not, of not measuring up, the pain of feeling like I was behind people, of comparing poorly. For a long, the pain of for a long time falling short of where, even in my mind, what I would, what I could hear in my mind, it, it, what manifested had, you know, was so poor in comparison. What manifested in terms of what came out was so poor. The pain of all that, that desire, was. One way of seeing it was, thankfully, that was less than the desire to manifest. So this is interesting. You know, to me it's interesting. Um, how much of my dukkha right now, in relation to what my desire and whatever it is I love, and in this case, jhana practice on this retreat, uh, How much is about negative self-view? And how much, in other words, it it would almost latch on to anything. Put you in another context and it would latch on to that. Put me in another context where everyone's doing this and we're doing this all day and it would latch on to that. 
How much of it is coming from that? It's just the propensity for negative self-view, finding some charged or object that becomes charged through repetition, through teaching, through environment, and it just, the dukkha builds on that, the negative self-view builds on that. And how much of it is from from the frustration about what I deeply love, which is a different to me dukkha. You understand the difference? <coughs> so, how much of my dukkha right now is coming from uh, is coming from, like I said, in in relation to there's something I really deeply love, and it's just frustrating not to be there, not to have that opening, not to reach it but it's in relation to something I deeply love. And how much of my dukkha is actually just a kind of propensity for negative self-view, which could latch itself onto all kinds of things. And put, put, if I put myself in another situation where we're emphasizing again and again and again uh, something else, that thing gets charged, this practice, that practice, this thing, that thing, and other people are around, and then the, neg- the, the self gets constructed, as I said before, in relation to that charged thing through repetition, through environment. And then the propensity for the self to get constructed with a negative self-view in relation to that thing. How much of my dukkha is that kind of dukkha? And how much of my dukkha is, is the other kind? I don't need to know in percentages, but th- in terms of practice, it's more like, is it possible at times to focus on, th- on the former, on, on, the, on, on the real deep desire? Now, to do that, I might have to go into and through my pain, not around my pain, because there will be a certain kind of pain with that desire. I want something so much, so deeply, I yearn for it, and and it's not here. But the pain is different than that I'm crap and I can't do this, and I did, you know, the self-view pain. So can I focus on the former desire through f- focusing finding that that pain that goes with that um, feeling that where there's that pain there will be the desire that goes with that pain does this make sense so the pain takes me that specific pain takes me to that specific desire and that specific desire is actually a beautiful thing and is there a way that I can then be with that desire in a way that I feel the energy of that desire and the love in the desire and the devotion in the desire and the alignment in the desire and even the beauty of desire. So there's a kind of potential alchemy here through the dukkha. But I have to, again, discriminate, discern. Which, which threads am I following here? Desire, desire is hard. It's hard. If I say yes to desire, I'm saying yes to the Buddha's analogy, a burning coal. And either I throw that burning coal away, or I learn how to relate to it, and I tolerate my burning. And, and where there's burning, there's beauty. And even blessing, benediction. And gift, if but I have to find the I have to find the right way to let this let myself be on fire, let that fire burn in me, let that desire move in me, in a way that's actually fruitful. And some of that takes quite fine discernment through the pain.
Okay, like I said, maybe that didn't, that's all I want to say for today. Maybe, maybe that didn't feel relevant uh, right now. It should at some point um, feel relevant. Because if you do this kind of stuff long enough, if you have the desire, um, it, c it can get hard. So I hope that at some point, at least, it will uh, certainly be relevant, but also feel relevant, and, you, and you'll recognize that. Okay, let's, um, let's just have a bit of quiet together. Right now, is it possible, however you're feeling and however you feel your practice is going, whether you're flying right now and really pleased with how things are opening, or whether you're actually quite struggling and quite unsure and feel a little bit disappointed or dejected about how it's going, or somewhere in between, is it possible right now for you to get a sense of the beauty of your desire? The beauty of your desire to practice, for practice, for what you want in practice. For the deepest callings that brought you here. Can you get a sense for how beautiful that is? How beautiful it manifests, how beautifully it manifests in you, that seed, that calling. Desire itself is something beautiful. Your desire, your soul's desire, a treasure. For sure, a double-edged sword, but something wonderful, miraculous, potent, a gift.
is it possible to perhaps to look back perhaps over the days of this retreat so far, perhaps over your life of practice, and recognize, acknowledge, open your eyes to, open your memory to all those times you've been willing to show up, try again, put effort in, put up with what's difficult, worked patiently, played persistently. Recognize that. Is it possible to acknowledge that? Can you again see the beauty of that, of that willingness, of that work, of that play, of that patience? And you love that one. That one who keeps showing up. Can there be appreciation towards that one who keeps showing up? Kindness towards that one. Cherishing of that one. even a hug for that one. modest or imperfect 
they might seem to you, your desire, your willingness, these are the gifts in you, to you, planted in the core of your heart from the divine, from the Buddha nature. Seeds planted, this desire, this willingness, your desire, your willingness. Seeds, jewels, given to you, planted in you, coming through you, from the divine, from the Buddha nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.